We're still in the midst of Paul's letter to the Romans, and I mentioned last week that we have a big task ahead of us this morning. So why am I trying to do it in one 30-minute sitting? Because I think the big themes that come out of it are the most important thing. And if we get so wired down into the details, we'll miss that. The details are great, only so much as they support the big things. And if you want to study this, and if you want more information, I'm happy to send more your way or point you in the right directions or answer your questions. But not at the cost of spending eight weeks in this and missing the big picture of what Paul wants to tell us. And the reality of what Paul wants to tell us is, why did Palm Sunday turn into Good Friday? And he's going to take three chapters to tell it. Partly because his heart is broken about it. Partly because he believes he has to do something about it. And partly because he believes there's there's possibility in it. And so that's our task this morning. As we look at these three chapters, uh, people have interpreted them all kinds of different ways. I think uh, if we stay in the big course here, you'll have a great understanding for how to go at them. Uh, So that's what we want to do this morning. Obviously, we are not going to be able to read these together. I'm going, to, I'm going to touch on different verses as it comes. I would encourage you over the next week, and we've got the Lent reading plan that's going to take us through the, the, the final week of Jesus' life, but just add some of these verses in there too and try to get the sense of what Paul is talking about. What I want to suggest to you is that Paul has three big questions in mind uh, in these three chapters. And so I want to present the questions to you. I want to try to give you answers. And then I want to use the rest of the time to say, why does this even matter? Uh, to a church in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, 2,000 years later, you know, that isn't dealing with the struggles of Jewish people rejecting Jesus right then and there. And I think there are huge ramifications for us uh, if we can stick in the game long enough to figure it out. So three questions that Paul wants to ask. Uh, We've said all along that Paul is using this um, narrative style of diatribe. And diatribe is basically where he asks himself questions and then answers them. He, pre, he um, creates a, what uh, the, the English word is an interlocutor, someone who's going to ask him piercing questions and that he's going to answer them. So that he's surmising, here are the questions that you have as a church as I'm giving you this message, and I'm going to answer them. Uh, part of the reason he uses that is because it was very popular in that day. The other part is because he's writing a letter from a faraway place. So he's got to try to assume these things and answer them. Uh, for them to, to get questions back to him would be months, And then for him to give answers would be another month. So like this is a year's cycle to answer these questions. And so he's trying to do it. So here are the three questions that that Paul wants to answer. The first question is, has God kept his promises to Israel? Has God kept his promises to Israel? And the answer that Paul gives, and we'll talk about this in depth here in a minute, is yes. He's kept every single one of them. In fact, in a huger way than they could have ever imagined. Second question is, why have the Israelites rejected God? And Paul's answer is unbelief, no faith. And the third question is, well then, is there any hope for the Jewish people? And Paul's answer is, yes, unbelievable hope for the Jewish people. So that's the framework for what we want to do this morning, and let's take a few minutes just to to figure this out. Has God kept his promises to the Jews? Unbelievable question, and in fact, Paul's sort of been dealing with this all throughout. We touched on it a little bit in Romans chapter 4, 
um, but he's been dealing with this all throughout. In fact, in most of his letters, especially a letter like Galatians, he's talking about it uh, tons and tons and tons as well, because this is a central reality. God made promises to the nation of Israel, and is he going to keep them or is he not? Is he going to bail on them or is he not? Now, we know that the Israelites made promises to God, and we know the answer. No, they don't keep them. Because they're no different than us, right? We make promises to God, and we don't keep them either. It's part of being human and fallen and finite and, and imperfect. But what about God? Remember, if you go all the way back to the second week in this study in the letter of Romans, we said one of the key themes in understanding this letter is the righteousness of God. Much of the interpretation of Romans is about the righteousness that's imputed to us. So many people focus on that, what I get. But really what Paul is talking about in this whole letter is the righteousness of God. And in that we meant uh, the integrity of God. Does he keep his promises? Right? And the holiness of God. Is he without sin? And we answered to both of those things, yes, in the opening thing. Well, here he comes front and center to the major question. Okay, you've said earlier that God keeps his promises, but I'm hearing all of these things and all of this, and there's all kinds of Gentile inclusion, and Jesus has done all of these things. Well, what about the Jewish people? You, God made promises to them. How is he going to keep those promises? And here's how Paul starts, Romans chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. You catch the heart of Paul? He's basically saying if he could, he would allow the Jewish people to receive Christ and he would remove himself from that. I'm just being honest with you right now. I wouldn't do that for you. Okay? So here's the heart of Paul for his people. So when he gets to this part of, I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth, he wants you to know how, just how serious, how reality this is. Uh, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. God made promises, right? Uh, It is not as though God's word had failed. So there's Paul's answer. God hasn't failed them. He's kept this. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Two, two ways that Paul wants to say he, that God has kept his promises to Israel. One is a reorientation. Okay? And you can't escape that in these verses. People try to escape it, but you can't escape it. Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. What is he saying? God made promises to Israel, but not everyone who is quote-unquote Israel is actually Israel. Make sense? So if we want to broadly apply this to all Israel, we've missed the point. That's not, what, that's not what God had dealt with. He's talking about the covenant people, the covenant keepers, right? So he goes naturally back to Abraham and Isaac here, as those are the ones he directly makes covenant with. And so what is he saying? What is this orientation? Not, not everyone who is descended from Abraham is actually a descendant of Abraham. 
We've got to go back to Romans chapter 4. Remember when we talked about this? True descendants of Abraham are replicators of Abraham's faith. They're not just offspring. Right? In the same way, we say um, Jackson and Tyler are sons of a pastor. Surely they're followers of Jesus. We don't know. Will they replicate my faith? I hope so. It's my prayer. It's my earnest hope. It's my intention. But just because they're from my blood doesn't make them something other than they share my last name and some of my features, right? And the same is true for Israel. Just because you are descendant, just because you can draw your family tree all the way back to Abraham is no guarantee to you. Because the true descendants of Abraham are the people who have the faith of Abraham. What is the faith of Abraham? Do you remember? Well, it's faith that moves his family at the call of God. It's faith that believes that God is going to do something in him which is remarkable. A family that's going to number uh, the stars in the sky and, and he and his wife can't have any kids and they're old. And yet they move in this faith. Why? Because their faith is not just an intellectual assent to something. Right? It's not that someone gave them three facts that they have to decide, do you believe this or don't you? It's not just that they grew up going to to uh, Sunday school and kind of are enculturated into a faith. It's that they actually trust God. So we've totally misdefined belief in our world because we've made it those two other things. Do you believe? Yes, because that's how I grew up. Or yes, because someone gave me these three statements and I accept them. Right? Well, let me tell you from personal experience that I had both of those things and I wasn't a descendant of Abraham as it was. You should walk with fear and trembling if that's what you're holding on to. I grew up that way, or I believe these things. And what you mean by that is you, your theology lines up with evangelical theology, as it were. How is your heart disposed? To trust God or to trust yourself, right? To trust God or to trust the systems of the world. This is the core understanding. This is what... Abraham could have responded to God's call and said, no, I've got things going A-OK right here. And so what Paul wants to say is that God has absolutely kept all his promises to Israel because not all Israel is Israel. He's kept his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And he kept his promises to Moses. And he kept his the people who have followed in the lineage of the faith of Abraham. This is no longer a blood relationship. It's a faith relationship. This is the first thing that Paul wants to say. A, a reorientation, as it were. And in fact, if you go back to the original promise, you know that God has bigger things in store than just national Israel anyway. Because the promise that he makes to Abraham is, I'm going to bless you, you're going to have a big family, and you are going to bless the world. So there are worldwide intentions from the get-go. And this, in many ways, is the great failing of the nation of Israel all through the Old Testament. They keep it to themselves. They try to do whatever they can to keep God giving them this blessing, and none of it wants to go. We see it most profoundly in places like Jonah the prophet, who hears a call from God to go somewhere, and he says, no, I hate them. I'm not giving them any blessing. I'm going to share good news with them. They're my enemies, right? 
And this sort of is the, the mortal sin of the nation of Israel in many ways, is that they're receiving the blessing, they're not a conduit of the blessing. But God's intention for Abraham has always been a worldwide reality, not just a geopolitical or national reality of Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Well, why? Because Paul continues, because those who aren't descendants of Abraham can be descendants of Abraham, right? Some who aren't Israel actually are Israel in a strange way. Why? Because Israel's intention, their vocation, their effort has always meant to be to spark the worship of God in the nations. You can't read the Psalms without finding that constantly, constantly, constantly. You need to worship God. God, I worship you. And then the end of so many of the Psalms is that, the, that those amongst us, that those apart from us, that those in the nations around us might worship you too. That's the vocation of the people of God, that their worship of God, that their receipt of the blessings of God would then be to bless other people, that those people might come to know the true God as well. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all that isn't Israel isn't Israel. And and the second thing, and this maybe is even more important than that, is that there's a narrowing of the understanding of Israel, not just a reorientation. How so? Well, it's hard to point this in just one verse, and you'll have to really read these chapters to understand it, and in fact, kind of understand the full scope of what's going on in Romans. But listen to verse 5 again. There are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. Uh, The Greek word there is Christos, the Christ, okay? Who is God over all, forever praised. So Israel has always been pointing to something bigger than itself. Get that? There's the patriarchs and the ancestors, and they've all been narrowed down into one person. So what Paul really wants to say is at the core, it's not just that some Israel isn't Israel and some that isn't Israel is Israel, it's that there's one Israelite. Does that make sense? And that person is Jesus. And that we'll find out in in a little bit that the only way to actually become quote-unquote Israel is to attach yourself to him because he himself is Israel. Now, this is complex. I know I'm trying to make it as, as simple as I can. But basically, everything has been pointing to Jesus. And Jesus now is the fulfillment of everything that Israel was supposed to be. Everything that they weren't, he is. Remember in Romans chapter 5, Paul is saying, are you a child of Adam or a child of Messiah? Right? Because Jesus is the new Adam. In the same way, Jesus is the new Abraham. And Paul's presented elsewhere that Jesus is the new Moses, and Jesus is the new Elijah, and Jesus ultimately, in all those realities, is the new Israelite. Israel has shrunk into one person, namely Jesus. And friends, that's not bad news. That's fantastic news. Because finally, all that Israel was supposed to be is now possible in the way that Israel was supposed to make it possible to the whole world. And all of the blessings and promises that God made to Israel are fully given to Jesus, the Messiah, and now available to everyone if they're in him. Does that make sense? Well, you might say, what about Israel? Well, if they're in him, fully possible. But in a technical, theological way, God has fully kept his promises. Why? Well, first of all, because not all Israel is Israel. Just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you're a covenant keeper. And two... Because ultimately, it's all about Jesus. Everything has been pointing to him. Paul will spend the rest of chapter 9 basically doing a retelling of the history of Israel. 
He'll go right through it, from Abraham to Isaac to Moses in the Exodus to the prophets. He ends up at Hosea, where he gives these unbelievable realities from the prophet Hosea. Those who weren't my people now are my people. Those who weren't blessed now are blessed. And he's saying that everything has been pointing to the Messiah. In a bigger way, this whole three-chapter section is formed sort of uh, in a chiastically structured reality. Now, if you've been with us before, you've heard me say this word. It's a big word that I like to use uh, an analogy of a sandwich for. Right? So everyone likes sandwiches. And sandwiches have two pieces of bread, but they're defined by what's in the middle. Right? And the same way a literary phrase, it's a chiastically structured phrase, the meat's in the middle. So you've got to go to the middle to find out what this is all about. Everything is leading into the middle. And the middle is found in the middle of, of Romans chapter 10. And ultimately, it's really found in one verse, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And what does that say? If they confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their heart, right, not in their mind, believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. This whole thing is about Jesus. We've made these chapters about Israel or the church but it's about Jesus, right? If you're on one side of the debate, this is all about Israel. If you're on the other side of the debate, this is all about the church. But really, it's all about Jesus. We've totally missed the boat. So many interpreters, we'll get to this in a minute, say that now Paul is making a parenthesis. He's talked about everything that God's going to do for the Gentiles, and that's fantastic. Now he's going to talk about what he's going to do for the ethnic Jewish people. And that's what Romans 9 to 11 is about. And there's a great future for them. Well, it's part of it. But that's not what he's talking about. And then there's a whole other camp on the other side that says, no, they're not talking about Israel. The church is spiritual Israel now. The church has taken over that. There's no more Israel. The church is spiritual Israel. And so this is all about the church and the promises that are coming to it. Well, that's part of it too. The reason there's debate and such fierce is because it's really about both of those things centered in Jesus. (laughs) Make sense? And if we would stop battling over that reality and see the center of it, We'd get the the huge detail and the huge blessing of what's going on. That anyone who is in Christ has the blessing, Jew or Gentile. Is there a future for Jews? You betcha, it's Jesus. Is there a future for Gentiles? Absolutely, it's Jesus. Is there a future for any of those two people apart from him? Not a chance. Not a chance. So let's not make this about Israel versus the church, because it's not. It's about Israel as fully defined in Jesus. Make sense? So, has God kept his promises to Israel in a huger way than they ever could have imagined? Because now they don't have to keep their part of the covenant to keep God's presence. It's been done for them. Well, what keeps Israel from receiving this? Why is Israel rejecting this? And why is Paul's heart broken over their rejection? Unbelief. Unbelief. Uh, Listen to this. Romans 9, verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? So there's Paul's question, right? Israel hasn't attained this thing. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, 
but as if it were by works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it was written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Why has Israel not received what God has promised them? Lack of faith. Unbelief. There's no ways around this. Why have you not received what God has promised you? Lack of faith. Unbelief. There's no two ways around this. Faith is the personal access of the promises of God. Now, what Paul is saying here is absolutely true. They have to, and I, should, I should pause for just a moment. Um, and I should have said this at the outset. Let me just make this, this little uh, caveat here. When I speak of this, I'm trying to be very careful to speak of the Jews instead of Israel. Because in this in these several verses, Paul uses Israel in a million different ways. We've already said that. Not all Israel is Israel, right? So what he wants to talk about is the Jewish people. But when I say that, I'm not talking about the Jewish religion. So I'm not talking about your neighbor who's a Jewish person. I'm talking about in Paul's day, why is the Jewish synagogues and Jewish infrastructure opposing the church so vehemently, right? So don't mishear me. I'm not making broad statements about Judaism today. Although my statements go for Judaism and every, anyone else who, whatever religious system they be in, Christian or not, are not living by faith, right? Because it applies to all of us in that way. So that caveat being made, why have the Jews of Paul's day and the Jewish structure of Paul's day rejected Jesus? Okay? Paul's got that final week of Jesus' life completely in mind. He came in in a big way, and the rejection happened. Why? Why? Unbelief. They didn't buy what Jesus was selling. They bought what they wanted Jesus to be. And so their faith was really works. Their faith was based on keeping a legal code or legal systems so that God would have to come live with them. They were taking it forcibly from God, but God's manner of giving it is, you can't, but I'm going to give it. See the difference? You can't forcibly take it from God, but you can receive it for free in faith from God. They were religious people and law keepers, but they were not people of faith. How hard does that strike at the Christian church sometimes? We are religious law keepers, religious moral keepers. We're religious but are we people of faith? All I get from these chapters, and really from my entire reading of the New Testament, is Jesus would much rather have faith from you than any religion or morals. That stuff will naturally follow in some ways, but not in such a codified, hard, legalistic way, in an actual transformation of your heart that disposes you towards the things of God. You can't force it on yourself, you know? David couldn't take the armor of Saul and make it fit him. But that's what we try to do sometimes. If I live a certain way, God will have to come live with me. He'll have to come bless me. He'll have to come take care of me. And then we get really agitated when he doesn't. Right? There's nothing more frustrating when you've like set out, you know, and you know it sometimes, you have these huge situations in your life, and so you're going to double down in holiness, and then the situation still doesn't turn out like he wanted it to. And there's nothing more agitating in the whole world than that. 
But you can't force God to be something for you. You have to open yourself up to receive from Him. And that oftentimes looks radically different than you anticipated it would. Why has Israel rejected God? They had a view of God that wasn't God. In fact, they wanted, in many ways, to keep this covenant membership system whereby Israel was a unique reality that God blessed them uniquely and that separated them from everyone else. They wanted to receive blessing but not give blessing. God had a radically different... We see Jesus, right? Receiving the Spirit, but His whole life defined by giving blessing. The true Israelite. Why have they rejected it? And Paul knows this hard and fast. This is why his heart maybe is even extra broken. Because that was him. Right? He was totally blinded by religion and, and laws and morals. So much so that he was trying to kill Christians. Now he's off trying to make Christians. You know, it's this radical transformation. And he's saying, why me and not them? You know? Why has this happened and not them? Well, he's understood that the, the change, the, the only difference is faith. It's the only difference in all that's happening. So, third question. Because now we've painted a, a, a tough picture, right? Not all Israel is Israel. And in fact, the only true Israelite is Jesus. But God has been faithful. He's kept it. Why is Israel rejected? Because of unbelief. So the natural progression of these things would be to say, so that's it. But that's not how Paul says it. Listen to, to Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I asked then, did God reject his people? Because this is the natural question that comes from this. And his answer, meganoito. He loves that Greek phrase in Romans. By no means, may it never be. Not possible, no way, no how. And then he says, I am an Israelite myself. A descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passages? Paul's saying, how could if he rejected Israel if I'm an Israelite and I'm in this covenant blessing, right? What Paul wants to say is, is there hope for Israel? Absolutely. Their hope is found in Jesus. Absolutely. Their hope is found in Jesus. Two things come out of this, really. Uh, The first is Paul's illustration of the olive tree. And you you may remember this from later on in Romans chapter 11. Um, Verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in amongst the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, uh, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, uh, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in this kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they can be grafted back in. For God is able to graft them again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted in and cultivated an olive tree, how much more readily will these, 
the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. Here's what Paul is trying to say from this. Okay? The olive tree has always, throughout Scripture, been an image of Israel. Okay? And so what he's saying is there's this natural olive tree which is Israel that is growing. Okay? But all the branches have been cut off because of lack of faith. And the only thing that is standing is the root or the, or the, or the, the trunk, which is Jesus, the true Israelite. And so here's this tree without any branches, but now the gardener, who is God, is attaching branches to this root. Some from that were already cut off are put, being put back on. And some from an olive tree over here that wasn't this olive tree. And he's grafting them in, right? So the Gentiles are from a different olive tree, but now they're this olive tree. And the Jews, some of them who were cut off, Paul's thinking exactly of himself, cut off, right? But now grafted back in. See, hope is not possible just because of national identity. We've talked about this already. It's possible because of our union with Christ. John talks about this in John chapter 15. Uh, Connected to the vine, that's how branches bear fruit. right? That's how they're covenant branches. And so the same reality is happening here. The hope of the Israelites, the hope of the Jewish people, is the olive tree that is Jesus. But you're cut off because of unbelief. Now, something totally interesting is going on here, and we should pause and talk about um, the, the cultural reality of the day, because there are some striking words in that paragraph that Paul has. The, the Roman church is mostly Gentiles, but it has a mixture of Jewish people in it. And remember Paul saying, hey, you're grafted into this thing, but don't get arrogant, right? Don't think that you're superior, is what he's saying here. One, because he's Jewish, so he's still got some ethnic and national pride, right? Absolutely. Uh, he's already said he would, he would renounce Jesus for them to, to, to see Jesus. But two, because he realizes that the ultimate identity is found in our union to Christ. Not in these realities. So, what's going on is that in the city of Rome, uh, there was an emperor uh, who had evicted the Jewish people from the city. He kicked them out. You can't live here anymore. And uh, when he died, uh, the emperor Nero uh, became emperor, who we know as a harsh and horrible and mean ruler. But he actually overturned the eviction of the Jewish people and let them come back. Unbelievable. Maybe the only good thing he did. I don't know. And so the Jewish people come back. But in their several-year absence, what had started off probably as a Jewish reality in the church at Rome has now become a totally Gentile reality. And all of a sudden, the Jewish people are coming back and finding things different than when they had originally been there. And Paul's addressing that very clearly and saying, listen, stop being arrogant. You know? You're not better than them, and they're not better than you. And really what is rising up in, in uh, culture in that day is this reality called Marcionism, and this is a great heresy of the church. And so some people say that Paul is addressing that, the beginnings of that right here. And Marcionism is the understanding that God is done with the Jews and that now God is doing a Gentile thing. And so forget the Jews. They're nothing. They're cut off. Nothing good can come from them. God's doing a totally new thing in and through the Gentiles. Paul's completely speaking against that here. Totally wrong. This isn't a Gentile thing. It's a Jesus thing. Yeah, it's not a Jewish thing. It's a Jesus thing. And both of you 
are grafted in in the same way. So don't one be superior over the other, right? Is there hope for the Jews? Absolutely, but only through Jesus, grafted back in to the olive tree. But then there's this strange reality, too, and I find this so interesting uh, in Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 11. Again, I ask, uh, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? This is what Paul's saying about the Jewish people. Are they, are they so bad that they can't be recovered? Not at all. Rather, because of their, their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in hope that I may somehow arouse in my own Jewish people and envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so too are the branches. We see a little bit of the heart of Paul in his full Gentile ministry, don't we? He's hoping that somehow an end result of it might be that his people, the Jewish people, would come to faith. How? Through jealousy. Now, this is a strange argument from the Apostle Paul, isn't it? We've been told that jealousy is wrong. But what is he saying here? He's saying that if the Jewish people see the full covenant blessings being bestowed upon someone else, maybe it will finally strike something in them that says it is Jesus. That is the key to unlocking all of this. Because there's no national blessing to a bunch of Gentiles, but all of a sudden they're receiving the very things that the Jewish people thought were supposed to come to them. So Paul's saying the Gentiles now become ambassadors to the Jewish people. And this circle is fully swung because the Jewish people were supposed to be ambassadors to the Gentile people. Unbelievable. Is there hope for the Jewish people? Yes, only in Christ. And yes, through the church. Through the Gentiles. Through jealousy of faith. Remarkable. There are the Paul's three questions. This is the best I can sum up these three very difficult chapters in three questions with complex answers. Has God kept his promises to the Jews? Absolutely. Why have the Jews rejected God? Unbelief. Is there hope for the Jews? Yes, but only in Jesus. So I promise you there'd be reasons that this matters to you. Because you're, if you're like me, you're sitting here thinking, well, great, God kept his promises to, to the Jewish people. What, who cares? What difference does it make to me? You know, I've trusted Jesus, and I understand. I, I read the New Testament. I understand what's going on. Paul's stopping for this, and that matters to some people. What does it matter to us? Well, I think there are at least five things, probably way more. We just don't have time to talk about them that make this radically important to us. Okay? And the first is bigger than any of them. The first is that you serve a God that doesn't break his promises. Because if he breaks one, suddenly the gamut is open to break any of them. And now that matters today. 
Because God has made promises to you and to me, promises that I'm counting on, promises of a full life, promises of, of, of a life that's better in the world to come, promises of rest for the weary, promises of carrying my burden, promises of being present with me all the time, promises of loving me, promises of forgiving me. If suddenly he broke a promise, even if it was thousands of years ago, the gamut is open. You can no longer be certain that any of the promises he has made to you are foolproof. Paul wants to say, stand in certainty on this God. He doesn't break promises. Even when, even when his people opposed him as, as rebellious, he kept his promise. And that's great news to me. Because if you're like me, in this week that's to come, you're going to rebel and oppose God. And he's still going to keep his promises to you. Remarkable. Astonishing. Unbelievable. That's why this matters. If he didn't keep his promise to them, you can't trust him. You know what it's like. Your best friend, your wife, your husband, they break promises. I hope your wife or husband don't mean to, but they just end up doing it sometimes, right? Fallen humanity. And you know what that's like to you. There's a hardening in your heart when that happens. A, can I trust them? It happens at work. And that's, that's not the case with God. Unbelievable. Second reason why this is important to us is because it is a classic reminder to us that belief, faith, is the means of personal access to the promises of God. So God's made all these promises. They're there for you. How do you enter into them? Faith. You trust him. You walk into them. You don't just simply say, as some people would say, I'm going to declare this promise over myself, you know, and, and mentally assent to it. I believe, Jesus, that you're going to carry my burdens. Guess what? I believe that. But practically, I don't always orient myself that way, and therefore I don't receive it. Right? Faith is the means of personal access. Not mental faith. Certainly you've got to believe these things, otherwise you wouldn't dispose your heart to them. Right? We get that. You've got to declare with your mouth, as Paul says in Romans 10.9. But he doesn't stop there. You must also believe with your heart. It's controlling reality. And so you walk into it. How does he carry your burdens? You trust that he's going to. And so in the midst of an awful situation in life, you walk in it saying, God, I don't, I don't have what it takes for today, but I, I, think you're, I, I trust that you're going to give me what I need. And at the end of the day, you look back and you realize he did just that. You don't sit there in the morning and say, God, I declare it over myself that you will carry my burdens today. And your whole demeanor changes and you walk free from them the whole day. That's not how it works. That's intellectual assent. That's not true faith. That's why we don't realize most of the promises of God. Because that stuff is hard, walking by faith. You know? And I speak from personal experience. You know? Baseball season is starting, and already most of the Phillies have horrible batting averages. And our faith batting average is miserable, Right? But even that little bit that we get, that we succeed, we taste this great goodness of God. And so we know in the world to come, right? Faith is personal access uh, to God's promises. Third thing, this is really important. No one is beyond hope. No one. 
Now Paul is speaking personally, right? He's not just talking about the Jewish people as a whole. He knows how he was oriented in total opposition to the move of God, killing people. Remember at that climactic moment in Acts when Stephen, uh, the deacon, the great preacher of, of the gospel, is stoned. Paul is the coat rack. He's holding everyone's coats so they have their arms free to throw the stones. Now he's writing scripture. No one is beyond the hope of God. No one. You might be sitting there thinking, but you don't know my story. I don't know it. You're right. But I know Paul's. Enough to know that no one, the greatest criminal that this world has ever known, is not beyond the hope of God. The greatest liar that this world has ever known is not beyond the hope of God. The greatest swindler of this world has ever known is not beyond the hope of God. Those who actively rebel and force against the move of the kingdom of God and oppress it is not beyond the hope of God. We prayed earlier in our prayer for the churches that are being persecuted. Those people who are persecuting them are not beyond the hope of God. Because the hope is Jesus. And it's open to everyone. And so if those things are true, it is true for you. And you might say, I get it, I get it, I know it. Well, faith is the means of personal access to the promises of God. You can't just verbally state it. Because this whole coming week and for the rest of your life, Satan will be in your ear telling you that you are not worthy, telling you that you aren't good enough, telling you that you are a failure, that you don't deserve the things that God has spoken over you. And yet, if you will listen to the voice of the Spirit, he will say to you, he's lying. You have everything. You're completely loved. You're not beyond hope. You stand redeemed in Jesus. Right? No one's beyond hope even those who oppose the move of the kingdom. Astonishing. Fourth thing. The people of God are meant to experience unity in the midst of diversity. Paul's writing to a church full of people who couldn't be more opposites of each other. Gentile, Greek-speaking, Roman citizens and mosaic law keeping Jewish people. There's there's no more polar opposites, right? And they clash and bang heads against each other almost at every turn because they see things differently. And yet Paul says, you're both in. You're both loved. One's not superior than the other. Again, we say these things verbally, but how much do we believe them? The reality is in the church in this world, there are classes of people. And it's wrong. There are the holy people and the not-so-holy people. Wrong. You're both unholy and both completely holy. That's the truth of God. right? There are those who give more to the church and those who are less fortunate and can't. And so some people run the church and other people don't. Wrong. Jesus is the head of the church. Neither of you are. You know? There are some people who uh, have an uppity lifestyle and some people who don't. And so some people are more esteemed and other people will wrong. If everyone knew your garbage, you'd be just as dirty as everyone else. Right? Jesus is the true Israelite. Unity and diversity. There's no classes in the church. Now, 
No one's better than anyone else, but we're all really different than each other, okay? And that's to be loved and embraced, not to be spoken against. So many people think that the church is meant to be this place of Christian homogeny, where you come into this system and we crank and turn and everyone comes out looking like Joe Christian. Wrong. You can't read the New Testament and see it any other way. Paul has a way of saying, here's what a Jewish Christian could look like. And he speaks very differently about what a Gentile Christian could look like. You know? Timothy and Titus, one of them he says you better get circumcised. The other one he says you better not get circumcised. Well, wait a minute. What's going on here? I thought we were supposed to produce a Christian at the end. Well, yeah, we are. You know? Some of them he says you better not eat meat sacrificed to idols. The other people he says you better eat whatever's in front of you. Well, wait a minute. What's going on here? It's unity and diversity. You know? There's an understanding of that, that the weaker brother is supported by the stronger brother, and so you set aside your freedom for that. Jesus talks about that. Paul, excuse me, Paul talks about that. But more than that, there's this understanding that we embrace the differences and uniquenesses of the people around us. One of the core values that we established from the church from the get-go is that it would be a safe place, that you could walk in here from any background, from any circumstance, dressed any way you want, with as much money as you have or as little money as you have, walking here, driving here, pulled here, by, you know, by <laughs> whatever. And you would be welcomed as if you were me. You know? I trust you felt that, and I think we've been able to establish that because that's the picture of the church. Friends, there's this, this um, way that, that America has been defined as a melting pot. Have you heard that phrase? Of course you have. You live here. Um, But melting pot really is a flawed analogy in my mind, and here's why. Because in a melting pot, everyone gets dumped into a pot and melted down and formed into something. That's wrong, right? At the end, we all look like something. Well, that's impossible, first of all, but second of all, totally wrong. Because one, it eliminates the strengths of people in the same way it eliminates the weaknesses of people. A much better picture than a melting pot is a mosaic where all these different pieces are put together and somehow, by the glory of God, it looks like Jesus. But if you take one of them away, it looks like a random tile. That's the church. And this is what Paul's saying. Hey, if you were grafted in as a wild branch or if you're a cut-off branch and put back in, no one's superior than the other. You've got to live together. We don't need any modern-day Marcionism either. That the church is only for a certain kind of people. That's garbage. In fact, if we really believe it, and we'll talk about this here in a second, the church actually isn't even for you. It's for the people who aren't here yet. Because otherwise we have no business being here. So we need to all get over ourselves and get on to Jesus. The core of what's going on here. And here's the last thing. Um, We need to create gospel envy in this world. Paul says it. No getting around it, right? Make people jealous. Now, we make people jealous for all the wrong reasons, but what if we created gospel jealousy? How do we do that? Two things, I think. One, you live in faith in such a way that you receive the blessings of God, and they're completely discernible to everyone around. Whoa, that's from God, not from this person. Right? Point one. Point two, you actually be the blessing that you were meant to be, and don't just keep it for yourself. If we live that way, okay, and I, listen, I get it. You're not perfect. You're not going to do this in any way completely, and, and me either. 
So we're, I'm giving us a mission that we're going to fail at, but if we get it a little bit, it'll be even good. If we even do that, imagine the gospel envy that this world will feel. They will actually want what you have. So many of the people who look at the church want nothing to do with that. We're Israel. We're keeping it all for ourselves and not actually experience it to begin with. And so we're failing at our mission to create gospel envy in this world. Oh, we're speaking it. We're shouting it. But that's been tuned out a long time ago. What if you lived in the blessings of God and as a result just wildly blessed people around you? That's a kingdom driver. (laughs) That's why Paul has hope that the Jewish people will come to faith. And can I make it more contextually relevant to you? That's the hope of God for this community. You. You're his hope for this community. Not because you've learned to speak the gospel really well and you can answer everyone's theological arguments. They want to see your life. Those will answer the questions. You know? But wait wait a minute, you just went through a cancer diagnosis and you're solid in your faith? Now, now, Now you've got my attention. Wait a minute, you just had this family situation arise up and you seem stronger as a family on the other side of it. How's that possible? Wait a minute, you just lost your job or you've been without a job for this long and yet you're praising God? That doesn't make sense to me. My eyes are opened. Right? This is the call of the church. Friends, God keeps his promises. Stand firm in them. But you can only receive them through faith. And you have a hope that is as certain as anything. But it is not through anything you've done. It's only through Jesus. Let me pray with you.